Rusty Quill presents. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Minerva Sanity Pillow Solution. The girth of life crushing you while crying more weight? Need a vent for all that steam your engine stores up? Expulse your exclamations of exasperation to the effortless endurance and elasticity of Minerva's tasseled sanity pillow. Restore the delicate balance of life by targeting a soft, delicate pillow as the resilient reception for your retaliatory resentments. In times of crisis, Minerva's sanity pillow is your cushy compatriot that can smother those sounds of severe shrillness and restore a calm sense of sanity to any sanctum. Use it on yourself or others. Minerva's sanity pillow solutions. Save your regrets for tomorrow. In a black pond, in a park where the melancholy waters lie, no heavings hint that winds have been on seas less hideously serene. In serenity, in calm, in peace, as the water pulls to the currents absconded with our mortality, drowning. Many mistakenly believe that the signs of drowning involve fighting. Fighting against that pull with thrashing about and splashing of arms and legs and hands. Shouting and choking for air. But in fact, drowning looks a lot different. A lot more peaceful than pugilist. Some drowning indicators include head tilted back, mouth open in a silent cry. Must hair pulled down over the forehead and eyes, obscuring vision. The eyes closed or glassy and unable to focus. It's more serene than signs of drowning spirit adrift bobbing at the surface between two worlds. A frantic crowd of onlookers had descended on the black pond in Lanula Park after the mystery of a missing newsboy had revealed an unknown body from its depths. Out of sight is out of mind, but always a chance our secrets could be revealed as we drown them in dark water, in lockers or wardrobes, hoping they slowly fade from memory. Charity Suter was dealing with some uncomfortable skeletons trapped in a wardrobe after stooping in a strange boy's room. Constable Hughes and Inspector Bennett have lost a mysterious cask after locking it away in their evidence locker. We lock away those inconvenient memories so that they can decompose into something less frightful. Out of sight is out of mind. The first step towards rewriting the past. The mind has a way of making things convenient for us like carving out certain pages from history as if they were never written at all. Take a walk by a pond on a bright day, and you will see that you can see your reflection just fine. A pond is a common poor man's mirror. One of the key differences between a pond and a lake is the ability to see the bottom. 
When throwing away scandalous materials, one would obviously prefer a lake, as it gives a shadowy place out of the reach for things to drift and fade away. Parvam Pond had a clear view to its depths when the waters flowed to fill the impression, but its blackened waters would be unavoidable due to the fate's intervention. As the plans for Lunula Park were being developed, the idea for a sizable body of water was always an essential part of the plan. The residents needed a break from city life to wander in the gardens and take a row out onto the water to enjoy the sun and the birds. Parvam Pond was supposed to be one of three water features in the park, but ended up being the only one successfully built. Once the workers had finished with the excavation of the reservoir, the waters were released without warning, and they ended up wiping out the workers' camp that lived there. Most got out alive, but a few drowned trying to escape. This had established the early curse of the pond and legends of the spirits that lived within. When it opened, the park was beautifully architected and full of lovely exhibits and pastimes. But the public didn't react at first, and the park and the pond sat empty. It was a chore to travel from the downtown buildings out to the area, and the city hadn't grown to envelop the park yet but would in only a few short years. The original planners set about creating a series of events to draw crowds to the park and drum up excitement. Marching bands traveled the circle, live theater in the outdoor amphitheater, butterfly lectures at the pavilions, picnics provided by the Spirit Baron with plenty of samples. On the first anniversary of the park, they decided to install a large fountain in one end of the pond near Eleanor's Nightshade Cafe. To showcase the fountain, several stunts were planned to bring the crowds for the day. Originally, a tightrope was stretched across the pond, and Tillipert was going to walk across it with his long balance pole. But the wind was a bit too much that day, and he canceled. The other stunt was a demonstration by Owen McLeary, a clever inventor who had paled in the face of some of the greater names of the era. He had failed to get several devices off the ground and into production. His latest was a simple contraption to help people to breathe underwater, and he felt like the pond anniversary was a high-profile and safe way of exhibiting his device. One silver coin would be thrown in the middle of the pond. He would walk from the edge, under the water, to the middle, and reveal the coin on the other side, safe and sound. Just between us, Owen had a spare coin in his pocket in case the original was lost in the mud. It seemed simple. However, not hours before the stunt... An accident occurred. The legendary hostess Felicity Founders ordered nine large arrangements to help illustrate the morbid theme of her birthday party. Her florist arranged the bouquets in the shape of coffins and packed them on the back of a hearse carriage. As the hearse rode through the streets, garnering looks and beckoning people to her party, a sharp shock sound spooked the driver and he flinched. The carriage sped out of control into the park and around the carve of the pond circle. Nine black chrysanthemum coffins slipped off the careening carriage and into the pond, sinking to the bottom, making the pond seem like a morose pit of watery despair. The fresh stained paper unfurled, and flowers leaked into the waters, giving it a darkened purple hue. The pond increased in murk as if someone had used it as a well to dip a giant, fancy-tipped, ornate fountain pen. The accident captured in the children's skipping song. Nine black coffins encasing delicate ladies. Nine black ink pens drawing delicate lines. One dark well with blackened burrowed banshees. Nine drowned maidens whose Owen's fate sublimed. Owen was undeterred. 
Out of money and any promotional ideas, he bravely carried on, thinking that the press might be even greater if he had to wade through dark water. He strapped two lead weights to his feet to make sure to keep from bobbing in the water. As the sun rose steadily in the sky, he stood at the edge, the crowd egging him on. He took his first few weighted steps down to the water edge and steadied himself. He took a few more until he was up to his waist. He affixed a long breathing tube to his face with leather straps and waggled it in front of him like a duckbill to elicit giggles from the crowd. They cheered. He tilted his head upward and walked confidently deeper into the water. Several more steps in, and Owen realized he couldn't see his legs or feet to place his steps as the water was darkening. He was a bit nervous about being able to see his way to the other side as the water was up to his chest. And then two more steps, and the water rushed over his face and ears. He heard the murky cheers as he slowly made his way through the pond mud. It was colder than he expected, but his breathing tube was working as he had hoped. He was able to pull in breath through his mouth as he moved across the water. Deeper he went, and then had the sudden thought of a passing bird dropping awful right down the tube and into his open mouth. The other side wasn't too far, but he tried to speed up a bit just in case. As he made it to the center, the mud was very slippery and his weights were sliding around. It was hard to make steps. Then right as his tube was just above the water's level, the ring holding the tube to the strap and mouthpiece crimped and collapsed. He accidentally took in a lungful of water. Owen opened his eyes but could only see black dye. Water rushed into his lungs. He flailed his arms, hoping to churn the water enough, but realized he'd never worked out any kind of signal in case of trouble. The dye had stolen the rays of light from the surface. The dark water seemed to stretch out forever. Something seemed to pull at Owen. As he kicked his legs, the lead weights pulled him further down. The harder he fought, the more he got stuck. The crowd thought he was showing off and erupted in a series of cheers at the success of his tube. He seemed quite comfortable down there. Pretty soon, we'd all be walking under the seas. In those dark depths, alone, flailing, the deep echoes of crowd cheers, his hands swimming about, stepping on stems and boxes as they broke apart under his feet. Owen McCleary expired with lungs full of black water and chrysanthemum petals. It was some time before anyone realized it had gone wrong. Only when the tube disappeared under the water and they lost track of Owen's location did they rush out to rescue him before it was too late. But it was too late, and they had difficulty locating Owen's body in the black pond. The scene was quickly covered. The crowd dispersed. Only a short article in the Lantern paper some days later would explain the accident and end with the lyrical line... Oh, what inventive dreams died with Owen McCleary, as if the entire burdens of his life compounded had pinned him to the murky bottom. After the accident, the park got the attention and the crowds they had been hoping for. They built a small memorial and added an additional name to the headstone shared by the lives the park had taken. A stunt, a previous accident, and an obscure reference to some previous residents in a dusty commons. Harvin Pond was the official name, but Black Pond was too easy not to take hold with the public and buoy the ghost stories and rumors of spirits walking the park. Have you ever heard the term honestly lying? 
Confabulation is when gaps in memory are filled with fabrications unbeknownst to the person doing the lying. A type of amnesia where the patches sewn in to fill the past are never examined too closely. Does the mind fill in the gaps to obscure inconveniences? Do we overlook elements of darkness so we can create stories to tell ourselves we are good people out on a stroll in an innocent park near an innocent pond? Maybe we need these little corners of the city, and of our lives there is some kind of hope. In a cold universe with no round corners, maybe we need to create these confabulations out of pure necessity. Over time, people forgot about the accident and the commons folk, and all kinds of folklore sprung up around the pond. A mirror for vanities, a cure-all for colds, a cold dip for the penguin club to set up the spirit for a new year. People took to walking around the pond path every morning with prams and pets pushed along. One resident of Park Row even had a peacock that was walked every morning. Until one morning not too long ago, the prized peacock plum slipped its decorative leash and scurried off into the arms of nefarious birdnappers. Its owner had been eagerly awaiting a demand for ransom, and that rough-papered envelope just slipped into the mail slot of Madame Viola Walker and into the hands of her servant Pumble to be delivered on a silver tray. Pumble held the silver tray with a note just in front of him as he entered Viola's office. There were empty glasses strewn about as she paced and drank hot egg phosphate. Pumble offered it, his hand shaking. Viola lifted it off the tray. It was roughly folded and had the ransom request written in tight letters. We have him. We'll release for a modest bag of money. The drop instructions were simple. Then, under the first set of handwriting was a rougher scrawl and broken pencil that also demanded a hundred wooden Duncan pennies. Wooden pennies, is that slang for something? Get Cooper, she knows about all these silly things, Viola said. Humble, head tilted back, mouth open in a silent cry, eyes glassy and unable to focus. Humble was drowning in the moment, terrified at what punishment await him. Viola shouted into action, chucking Pumble awake. Don't stand there like a whimpering hen feeling sorry for yourself. Get a flour sack from the kitchen, she said. I'm not giving them one of my good traveling bags. And find out what a wooden penny is, and where they can be obtained. Get a hundred of them. I'll get to the safe to get this modest bag of money. Pumble bolted into action. Madame Viola went to the safe. Pumble reread the ransom note, seemed puzzled. Get the sack, she yelled. Humble handed the sack to Viola and started filling it with money. He donned his heavy long coat and hat and with a thick roll of bills from Madame, set off to track down a source for wooden pennies. A bit later and Pumble still wasn't back. But next door, Enoch returned from his tutor lesson with other children. He'd spotted a cheese tray and admired a decorative knife left at the platter's edge. Upstairs, hiding in his wardrobe, was Charity Suter, his guardian's love interest. She'd been snooping in his room looking for a scrapbook she'd given him, but wanted to sneak back without anyone noticing. She'd panicked and now was stuck in the wardrobe. Charity heard footsteps across the floor and stopped to listen. It was Enoch. There were smaller steps with hard shoes clacking on the floor, and then a pause. And then metal sliding. Oh no. The cheese knife. She left it out in plain view. She heard it slip off the platter. Her breathing grew more rapid. She heard more footsteps, this time to the bottom of the staircase. 
The voices again. Whispers. Enoch's footsteps clapped up the stairs one by one. It's the tip of the carving knife. Dragged against each stair. Thunk. Scrape. Thunk. Scrape. He got to the second floor and turned towards his room. Charity froze in fright, shivering. The fall of footsteps and the scrape of a long knife against the floor to the room and inside. She could barely see him through the crack in the wardrobe. He was looking around at his things, his pillow, the nightstand. And then he turned to look at her. She clasped her hand over her mouth to stifle the breathing. Enoch pushed some books to the floor. He shuffled through them and opened one up. He was just out of view when Charity saw the knife flash up. She gasped. And she heard a tear. Enoch stood up and walked over to the slit in the wardrobe doors. Enoch looked through the slit and saw her sitting there in the low light. She waited for the knife to come out, pulled herself against the back of the wall of the wardrobe. Enoch pulled his face away, and then with his little fingers, shoved a piece of paper in the slit. It fell on Charity's lap. She picked it up, keeping an eye on Enoch, who didn't move. He held it up. It was a page of rough paper, been cut from a book. Enoch took a few steps back. Charity slowly pushed the door open. The knife was on the floor, near the pile of books. One of the books was open, and the back page had been cut out. Hello, Enoch, Charity said. Did you enjoy my game of hide-and-seek? She asked, thinking quickly. Shall we light the lamp? It's getting dark in here. We can do some reading. She turned the light up a bit so she could get a look at the page. It was the last page of a book. One last line from a letter between lovers. It read, Love you more than the seas. Make them drown. Yes, they did. Is this for me? She asked. Did you want me to read it to you? She was trying to make sure the situation remained calm. Enoch walked to the wardrobe and inspected his sandwiches. He took a bite of one and pushed the pieces back in. He picked up the scrapbook and placed it on the edge of the bed. Charity used this as an opportunity to pick up the cheese knife and place it high on a shelf out of Enoch's reach. She sat on the bed and opened the scrapbook. Enoch sat next to her. She talked him through a few pages, telling him about her childhood and what each pressed flower meant. After some time, after the light had faded into night, Charity heard a commotion outside and went to the window. She saw a small group setting up for a night of ghost spotting on the benches, under heavy blankets, drinking from wineskins. 
The pond had refrozen partially in the cold as the sun went down. A ransom note had been delivered. Viola was beside herself and after sorting the money in wooden pennies, locked herself in the office waiting. For the note's instructions, the ransom could not be delivered until the next day. Constable Hughes walked his usual park beat, had taken up in the night guard's box, but had fallen asleep with a tiny heater and a flask of rye. Pumble couldn't help but bring the ghost hunter's tea as he was idle in the house and had already cleaned everything twice. Charity sat on the end of Enoch's bed, staring out his window, watching the nightfall. She saw Pumble deliver thermoses and disappear onto the far side of the pond, swallowed by the dark. Enoch sat on his bed, sorting the small found trinkets on his nightstand. Charity read more of the romance book and looked at the words on the page again. Edmund was late. Dr. Quaid had finally shook him loose, and then he had gone to his office to draft up plans for hats or phrenology treatments. The cook and the maid had returned from the market. The shock from before had worn off, and the drain of the day took her. She slowly drifted off. Charity opened her eyes. Enoch was staring at her. She lifted her head and placed the book with the others. Shall we get you to bed? She yawned. It's time I should be making my way home. She picked her scrapbook up and made her way over to the window to look out into the cold to see if there were any carriages near the park entrance. It was late. She looked closer and wiped the condensation from the window. She breathed in sharply. No, she said as she dropped the book and placed her hands on the window. Enoch walked up behind her to look. She took a twist spyglass from the window frame. Out on the pond in the faint light, there was a figure. A shimmering white that seemed to drift near its middle, slowly making its way across the ice. Charity could barely make it out. It seemed to almost change shape as it drifted, like a white gossamer mist. The ghost hunter stiffened, blankets and gear flew in every direction. The ghostly figure floated at the middle of the pond, arms outstretched, an almost pained look on its face. The wind whipped up scattering snow and frost and swirled around the ghostly outline, as if the morgan of the water, Owen's bitter resentment, rose up out of the pond. A dark dot on the other shore darted out towards the apparition, a man running at full speed towards the center. Look out, Charity wanted to shout. As he got closer to her, she realized the sprinting man was Viola's manservant, Pumble. What was he doing? The ghost turned towards him, arms outstretched. Edmund opened the door downstairs and caused Charity to jump. She ran downstairs, yelling at Edmund as she reached out for a coat. Ghost! was all she could manage before she rushed out the front door. Edmund turned around and followed her. He chased her out only to see the pond empty. No one was in sight, not anyone. The ghost, Pumble, even the ghost hunters, gone. You look a little pale, Charity. Should I get you a nightcap? Edmund asked. Charity closed her eyes and simply, quietly, asked for a carriage home. Edmund complied. Next door at Lavendula, the lights turned out floor by floor. Is it important that memory be accurate? As we invent the now, maybe there is no actual evidence for yesterday. Perhaps we are all filling in the cracks with patchwork just to get through, and in the end, it doesn't matter what really happened. Out of sight is out of mind, 
We cast out people only for them to be uncovered in the churning muck like a rotten turnip. How much of what we remember is real compared to the little stories we make up to patch missing scenes? Frames spliced into our common memory in a city to push back for just one more day against the pull that would drown us in the past. Our lives pages cut from our stories, a ransom note scrawled to smooth out the path to serenity, or scrapbooks of pressed flowers reminding us only of the things we want to remember. Turn the page to the next episode of Celine. Would you like a ticket to enjoy the revelry of Noon Night Affair? Our Patreon is a place where you can see all the sordid savagery and indecent decadence of the mysteries of our fair city. Want some answers for once? Solve the mysteries and share never-before-heard stories, music, and spectacle. Come be a part of Moonlight Affair, Silent Treatment, and Celine with the other spirits again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.